0: Hey friends, this is Jason, and this is the South Bend City Church Podcast. Uh, We are releasing last night's gathering on this episode. Today's Thursday, November 10th, and this is audio from our teaching from last night, November 9th, which was the day after this little election that we had in the United States. Um, So we wanted to make sure that we get this episode out to you right away in case you want to tune into what we talked about. We've got a couple of other episodes dropping today as well because we got a little bit backed up, so we are just like throwing a bunch of stuff out there today. But just to keep things straight, uh, this is from just yesterday, Wednesday, November 9th, when we gathered and asked lots of questions about how Jesus lives and teaches and moves through a political world and what we could learn from that. So it was was a really special night for us to be together. I know a lot of people have felt uh, just a very intense sense of division in the last few days leading up to the election And I know there were a lot of intense and complicated feelings around the election. And I know a bunch of us just found it really beautiful and meaningful to be together. Um, We've got a diverse community of people with a lot of different perspectives about politics and our current cultural moment. But we have a a sense of unity that comes from being together and loving one another and rallying around the way of Jesus. And so it was really good. Uh, If you'd been there last night, you would have heard... A couple of things coming up next week, November 16th. We are not meeting together on Wednesday at the Brick. Rather, on that night, we're gathering in homes all through the area here. And we'd love to have you join us. These are just uh, totally chill in-home dinners that a number of families in our church are hosting. And you're welcome to be a part of one. Just make sure that you sign up by going to southbendcitychurch.com. Uh, You'll see that under the events area, under what's happening. Uh, That's the 16th. And then the following week, the 23rd, that's the day before Thanksgiving. So we're just not going to gather at all. And then on November 30th, which is a couple of weeks from now, on November 30th, uh, that Wednesday night, we're going to have our first ever Eucharist service together as a church. Uh, Maybe you hear the word Eucharist or communion or Lord's Supper, but it's a chance for us to gather around uh, a sacramental experience of bread and cup and share that meal, and celebrate um, that table together. So it's going to be really special, and I hope that a whole bunch of us can be there for that. Uh, That being said, let's, uh, let's jump into our conversation last night around Jesus and the church, and the world that we are living in right now. So I was listening to news radio a couple of days ago and they reported on a survey in which half of Americans said they're either somewhat or very stressed about the election and the brokenness in me, the the depraved, difficult thing about me as I heard that and I'm not making this up, my first thought was only half? Who are the other half who think they have a right not to be stressed right now? We should all be stressed about this, and if you don't have anxiety about this, I need you to get in this with me. <laughs> that's kind of what went on inside me for a moment there, and I'm just confessing that to you. And I'm not proud of it, but that's kind of what I felt. Like, how are you not stressed? And who are you, like, that you think this doesn't matter? And I wish I had that, but also I'm mad at you a little bit right now. They said uh, they asked respondents to name one song that most typified the moment we were living in. They could could nominate any song. It was sort of an open survey. So any song could be nominated, but one song was nominated so much that it was nominated more than all the other songs that were nominated combined. And the one song that was chosen, this won't surprise you, it's the end of the world as we know it. (laughs) We feel this whenever the political season rolls around a little bit, don't we? And there's anxiety. Part of it is, We sort of settle into a certain kind of status quo and it works more for some people than others, but it's a status quo and we live with it for a season. And then this thing happens and it threatens to shake that status quo. And if the status quo wasn't working for you, maybe you're hoping for a change. But if the status quo was working for you, maybe you're concerned. We just have these anxieties bubbling up, right? So tonight we need to talk about um, politics, but I promise it'll hopefully go in a better direction than maybe you think when you hear a pastor say that he wants to talk about politics. And tonight we need to talk about um, stories from Washington, D.C. and stories from the first century, and we just need to get into it. But before we do, I want to just let us sort of take a breath together one more time. So if you would, if you want to, um, let's just do a brief sort of meditative moment here, nothing weird or crazy, but just a chance to sort of center ourselves. If you want to, for me it's usually best if I find a way to kind of get my feet sort of flat on the floor and and not like sit rigid, but just to kind of sit relaxed. And I just want to help us enter into a brief... Uh, moment of peacefulness before we jump into it, okay? So, um, so uh, sometimes I like to put my hands on my knees. Sometimes I, so I like to open them up as a sign of my openness to God. Um, but let's, uh, let's sit quietly for a moment. And now let me remind you, as, as we sort of just enjoy the peacefulness of this moment, let me re- remind you, you don't live in the headlines. You live in your body, and your body is right here, okay? And we, we don't actually live on social media. It might feel that way. We might feel like we live in the comment sections on your wall or your friend's wall. We don't live there. We live in our bodies, and our bodies are right here. We don't live in the politics of Washington, D.C. We may be affected by them, but we live in our bodies. Our bodies are right here. So why don't you take like one deep, rich, beautiful breath, feel it in your lungs, and remind yourself you're here right now, and that's really good. And God, I pray that you would help us to be present, to trust that it is good to be right here right now, To be with one another and to be with you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. I don't know about you guys, I needed that breath. There's a a phrase um, that became famous about 2,000 years ago in the first century. It's sort of a peculiar phrase that became common to be said in the first century 2,000 years ago. I want to read this to you. This might sound familiar to me, to you. Uh, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And the name is... Yeah, come on, you guys, you know it. The name is... Oh, except you thought I was talking about the first century A.D. I'm actually talking about the first century B.C., about 40 years before Jesus, when the Roman Empire was going around the ancient Roman Empire, saying there is no name under heaven by which men shall be saved except Augustus, Caesar, the emperor. I don't know if you knew, that's where the phrase comes from. That's where this language arrives. See, uh, Rome is expanding its empire, raging around the Mediterranean world, coming to villages and tribes and nation states and saying, peace is coming, but you must surrender to the good news of Caesar. You must bow your knee. There is no name under heaven by which men shall be saved except Augustus. So get on your knee, bow down to Caesar, and become Roman with us. This is happening right around the time of Jesus, and this language precedes Jesus a little bit. And it's interesting the the saving language here like in like western religious culture when we hear save a lot of us just instantly go to afterlife ideas we go to metaphysical ideas that have little to do with bodies and physical spaces and moments in the current day we we go to the other stuff right but this word, when they first heard it, it wasn't about the other stuff. It was about the here and now. It was about Caesar saying, I will fix what's broken for you. I will deal with the problems that you are dealing with. I will make everything okay for you. It's interesting, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's like politics has always had a tendency to say, there is a name by which you shall be saved. A lot of politics starts to sound like that. There's a name that, that by which you will like, have everything fixed for you, right? It's a candidate, it's a party, it's a platform, it's a persuasion in the voting booth. This is not new to us. This has always been the rhetoric of politics when it is most intensified. This has always been the claim of leaders in the world when they are most on their high horse. My name, I will fix this. And it's interesting that we all know the language not from Caesar. We know it from the Christian story from Jesus, right? So let me take you to where this might be a little bit more familiar. This is in the book of Acts chapter 4. Last week, uh, Ryan preached this profound sermon about Ananias and Sapphira and what it means to be wholehearted in what God is up to. But the week before that, we talked about a story where a beggar is a cripple and he's at the gate called Beautiful, and Peter and John, they heal the man and they bring him into the temple courts. Maybe you remember that. To me, that feels like a long time ago. It feels like a lot has happened in two weeks. But we told that story. They, J- Peter and John, they're walking along. They're right there in Jerusalem, and they see the, the cripple, the beggar, by the gate, and they heal him and they take his hand and they walk him into the temple courts, into the the holy place where all the action is that he hadn't been able to walk into for a very long time because of his body not being what a body was supposed to be to be in that place, right? Well, in response to this, the religious authorities, everybody who's sort of in charge of keeping peace in the temple courts, they're not very happy about this. So first they drag Peter and John into jail for a little bit, and then they drag Peter and John in front of some of the authority figures and they interrogate them about this. And Peter and John, they explain what's going on, And this is uh, the first scripture that you have on your notes there. This is Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He's the stone the builders rejected, which has become the capstone, which is his way of, of bringing language from their ancient scripture into the story. And salvation is found in no one else, for there was no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And here we see them pulling in this Caesar language and using it about Jesus. Now we're going to try to unpack this a little bit. There's a lot we could do with this. We won't cover all the ground by any means. We're going to. Let this provoke us a bit, but I, I just want to observe something right out of the gate here, which is that Jesus was walking around in a political world. Jesus was walking around in a world where political claims were being made and powerful people were doing powerful things. And if we think that Jesus has nothing to say to us when we are living in a political moment, we've misread Jesus. Jesus. This is why it makes sense for the followers of Jesus to take that language about Caesar and apply, there's something that makes sense to them about using this language from the empire, from the political leader, and using it with Jesus. There's something about that that works for them, and we're going to unpack that a bit. But first, let's just observe that we, if we're going to read Jesus well, if we're going to read him accurately in the text, we have to read him living in a political world where there's power struggles and factions and sides arguing about the best way forward and who should lead and how we should be led. Jesus is living in a political world. A while ago, I was in Washington, D.C., and I was there for this conference for leaders from a whole bunch of different sectors, and so there were pastors from small towns in Indiana, and there were government leaders and elected officials and business people from all over the world, and we're there because we all share a concern about a conflict in another part of the world. So we have a few days, and it's kind of heady, and there's like all these very important people around, and I'm kind of trying to not make too much of an idiot of myself when I don't know the protocol. And at the end of it all, I have a late night flight home, and so I've got some time between the end of the conference and my flight. My friend Greg, who was running this whole event, Greg's this really impressive guy, Yale Law grad, done all this stuff all around the world, and now he convenes this group. My friend Greg says, hey, if you're sticking around, I'm having dinner with a friend tonight, why don't you join us? And so I go have dinner with him and his friend. We sit down and we start talking. Now, Greg's friend is also this very impressive person. She's a lawyer, a human rights activist. She's a kind of person who's welcome in rooms that I'll never be in, and you probably won't either, you know what I mean? And she's, uh, she's very activist, though. She's very intense. See, she's from the place in the world where this conflict is that we've been talking about, and she's from one of the factions in that conflict. And she's an activist. She is for one faction against another faction. She's for one group of people in a way that really she is against another group of people, and we're there talking, and I'm mostly just trying to learn, and I think this lady is way above my pay grade, and I don't have the experience or the expertise, and she's sophisticated, and it's complicated, and I just want to mostly like sit here and shut up, but my friend Greg decides he will help me, and <laughs> so we're talking, and earlier that day, Greg and I had been talking about Jesus and something Jesus said in his teachings, and I was trying to put the pieces together on, on how it is that following Jesus could matter in a world where conflict like that conflict exists. So we were just kind of thinking about that together and this particular thing that Jesus teaches and how it might apply. And that was earlier when it was just me and Greg. But now we're at dinner with impressive lady and Greg says to me, an impressive lady, hey Jason, tell her that thing that you were saying about Jesus. And when you're a pastor and your friend says talk about Jesus, you're not allowed to say no. You know, it kind of stinks, Right. But I'm sheepish, you guys, because I'm like, ah, it's sophisticated and complicated, and I don't want to sound like naive, like Indiana Sunday school boy, you know, but I kind of like have to get into it a bit. And so I say to this person, I say, um, you know, Jesus says this thing about how we ought to interact with one another in conflict, and it's interesting, and she kind of cuts me off, not rudely, but she says, look, no offense. She says, but Jesus doesn't have anything to do with this. I'm not talking about religion or spirituality. She says, I'm talking about a group of people who live in a part of the world that's been militarily oppressed, who've been ethnically and religiously set aside and live under the boot of all that kind of power and have lived that way for generations, and they're trying to figure a way out of it. And you guys, the more she tried to tell me Jesus didn't have anything to do with it, the more I realized he had everything to do with it because that's exactly the kind of world that Jesus was speaking in. 2,000 years ago, he's a Jewish guy living in Palestine when the Roman Empire has come in and taken over. And every day of their life, they feel the problems of that complicated, difficult, military, political, religious situation that they are in. And before the Romans, it was Assyrians and Babylonians. It has been generation after generation for them. They lived in a complicated political world. And Jesus is talking to people who feel all of that complexity every day. I, it hadn't struck me until she tried to convince me otherwise, and then the more she tried to convince me otherwise, the more I felt like, no, Jesus has something to say to us who live in a political world, who wrestle with political moments, right? And So I want to like, press into that just a little bit. I, w- I want to explore some of it. Now let me say, the question of how Christian faith translates into politics we could go a lot of places with that. That's not really where I'm trying to go today. The question of who you should vote for, how you should think about what happened last night, I'm not trying to be prescriptive there. I can think of friends who love God passionately, who surrender their lives in humility to the way of Jesus, who think deeply, who wrestle, who wrestle immensely with these questions and who are way smarter than me, who have landed in many different places on the question of how Christian faith should translate into politics and votes. So, I, I, What I'm talking about is like upstream from that a little bit. Like more about like how the political moment may have infected our hearts. More about how the, how the binary, how the conflict, how the fighting, how the tension, how the fault lines that have been exposed in the last few months may have dug into us and how Jesus might want us to reject that for a better way, okay? So I want to show you another passage. This is um, also in your notes there. This is back in the book of Matthew where we also see a Jesus and Caesar moment going on. Uh, It's interesting that, that Jesus and Caesar shows up here again. So this is Matthew chapter 22, and it says the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him, that's Jesus, in his words. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, and the Pharisees and the Herodians, they have different ways of reading the political moment that they are living in. They're sort of on opposite sides of a political fight about how it is that one is faithful in the moment that we're living in, that they're living in right there, okay? And teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. They're buttering them out, which just tells you like they're trying to trap him, right? They're trying to woo him into a trap. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So we already, we see that they, they tried to lay a trap for him, but we might kind of miss the trap, Uh, let's just keep reading. Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked, Whose portrait is this and whose inscription? And you'll see below, we don't know for sure if that's the image of the exact coin, but that might be the very coin that they held up there, the denarius. Whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Whose image is on the coin, he's asking. Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. When they heard this, they were amazed. Now, that's interesting language. Why were they, I mean, amazed is a funny word for a simple answer like that, right? I'll tell you why they were amazed, because he just did jujitsu on their question and they didn't see it coming. That's why they were amazed. the, The reason they've laid a trap is they've created a question that if Jesus just answers the question, it doesn't matter how he answers the question, any answer to the question plays their game and he is already lost. Have you ever felt like politics is a bit like that? That there are political questions being asked, whose side are you on, right or left, Republican, Democrat, who are you voting for? And sometimes just answering the question, in some ways we have already lost. So he, he feels that there's a trap here, and the first thing he does is he breaks their question. He, like, he like debunks it. He, he rips it apart with asking them whose image is on the coin. We miss this. We read right past it. So these people have a coin on them, and on the coin is an image. On the coin is a graven image. In the Jewish consciousness, in the Jewish scriptures, graven images are a big, big no-no. There's a word for it. The word is an idol. Maybe you remember the old Ten Commandments, you know, love, or <laughs> love the Lord, that'd be, that'd be the new good stuff. But first one, no other God before me, right? Another one of the commandments, you shall make no graven images. And they took this very seriously and very literally because graven images and an idolatry never went well for the Israelites. In their story, things get really, really bad every time idols and graven images become a part of their story. And so he calls them out. He says, oh, do you, do you have one of those on you? tell me, is there a graven image on that? And already they're being confronted with the problem in their question. There's something idolatrous inherent in the system they're a part of, inherent in the fact that they're walking around with little metal images of Caesar on their person. So the first thing he does is he sort of breaks open the question, and then he says, it's almost like he's like, so give to Caesar what a Caesar is, for all I care, give all the money to the tax, because that's not where the action is. It's like he says, you think all the action is in what you do with this idolatrous metal, that's not even where the action is, that's not what we're supposed to be paying attention to. This is important, like, Caesar and what he's up to, that's not where the action is, that's not what we're supposed to be paying all of our energy, all of our attention to, it's not where the action is. When Jesus said things like, my kingdom is coming, He didn't say it because he read the political fortunes because he looked at Caesar's platform and policies and said, this is the moment when the politics will bring the kingdom. When Jesus said this kingdom is coming, a kingdom of goodness, of flourishing for every kind of person, of healing and wholeness, of sick who are healed and captives who are freed, when he said this kingdom is coming, he didn't say that because he looked around and he thought, the political environment is right for this and the political movement will take care of this. That's not what he's saying. So when they come to him and they ask him what he feels about Caesar and the coin, he says, look, this is, this is this whole thing, the system, the money, the empire, all of it, there's idolatry built into it, and we don't do idolatry. So just move on. Forget about it. He's paying attention to something else. What is Jesus paying attention to? What does he say next? He says, give to God what is God's. Now remember, he determined that what belonged to Caesar is known by where his image is found. Right, he said, "Whose image is on it?" And then he said, "Because Caesar's image is on it, give it to Caesar."s Where is Jesus paying his attention? Where where does he see the action? What matters to him? There's a question going on here about where you see what kind of image. On another trip to DC, I was doing the tourist thing, and uh, I was nerding out. And you guys just need to know that your pastor's a geek or a nerd, or I know those are different things now, but I I think I'm a nerd, not a geek. because I don't know how to plug in my TV, so I think I'm a nerd, not a geek. Is that what that means? <laughs> yes? Okay, thank you. Lori's like, yeah, Jay's a nerd, got it, okay. We did fun stuff. Like, I, I say this for you guys to know, like, I think politics is important and interesting, I pay attention to it, I like learning about it. I'm not trying to say like we just jettison the whole thing. We did a Supreme Court tour and I got a buddy who's a law school grad who had another buddy who was clerking for one of the justices. So we got the total inside tour. We sat through oral arguments in the court, which was awesome. Like when the justices walked into their robes, I had to keep myself from clapping a little bit, you know? are not <laughs> supposed to do that in there, you know? We got a tour, I got to like hang out in Justice Thomas's private personal chambers and touch his desk. And then they took us, there's a, um, like say we're, say we're in the actual courtroom where Supreme Court uh, cases are argued right like say we're in the room well the ceiling of that room is the floor of the room above it obviously right and on on that like on that floor in that room right above them there's an actual basketball court where the justices and the clerks play the true story we got to see it guess what they call it the highest court in the land <laughs> <laughs> if they're going to have humor at the supreme court you knew it would be nerd humor right Anyway, um, that was all just for free. But while we were there, we did some other monument touring, and I remember walking into the Lincoln Memorial. And I don't know if you've been in the Lincoln Memorial. It is an impressive physical thing. It is is—it's really something. I mean, like the ancients, man, they knew how to build temples. Like, they, they knew how to, like, just get your attention. And you walk in, and, and you see Lincoln, and he's sitting there, and there's something about the way you read his face that you just, like... You sort of, you feel the imposition of this man, of what he meant in history. You see the Gettysburg Address and the Emancipation Proclamation on the walls and you read them and you are just like struck by this man and his vision of leadership and what it meant in the world. This is what monuments do. This is what stone images do. And this would have been in mind for the writers of scripture when they wrote the very, very, very earliest words in the book that you and I call the Bible. Because in Genesis one, we begin to read about God creating the world. Where there is darkness and chaos, God is bringing light and order. Where everything is sort of swirling around in a mess, God is putting things together in a beautiful and artful way. And there's, there's uh, at the beginning, it's sort of like just darkness. But by the time God is done with all of this creating, there's diverse flourishing. There's all sorts of different kinds of life, all kinds of different kinds of beauty, all teeming together, flourishing in this story. This is what God does in the beginning of the story. And then at the end of all of this creating, God says, let us make man and woman. Let us make humankind in our image. And the ancient writer would have been thinking about the fact that back in that day, Kings and queens, empires, emperors, what they would do is, as they had a larger and larger empire, they would build statues of themselves to remind the subjects of that kingdom who was king. This is in the consciousness of the audience of this text. They would build stone images of themselves throughout the kingdom to remind the kingdom who was king, to remind the kingdom of the promises of a king who said, I will bring peace, I will fix things for you, No name under heaven by which this tribe, this village, this city, this part of the world is saved, and this king or that king, and they would build statues to tell the world this is who's in charge, and to be in charge is to promise flourishing, to promise to put the pieces together. And we read in Genesis 1, God puts the whole world together and then creates living, breathing monuments to God, image bearers, and the image bearers are you and me. And they come to Jesus, they say, hey, the action with the taxes and the empire and all of that, like, what's the right way to interact with that? And Jesus says, that's not even where the action is. That's idolatrous. There's something broken about that inherent to it. You're looking at the wrong thing. You're paying attention to the wrong thing. Political idolatry has all kinds of problems. One of them is that it dethrones God, but the other is that it distracts us and diminishes us from the very thing that we should be paying attention to, which is the image of God in every person we are living with, walking with, moving with, working with, and the image of God in you. The dignity that you carry as you move through the world and you have some agency in the world, you have some power in the world, you have some say over your neighbor's life tomorrow, right? On whether they know that they are loved or not, on whether they are served or not, on whether you bring what you have to help them flourish tomorrow. You and I, every one of us has some power, some agency, some way that we can act on the world. Jesus says the action's not in that political idolatry, the action is in the people who bear God's image. He says, uh, what image is on the stone, or on the, on the coin, Caesar, then give it to him, but then give to God what is God's. Every person who bears God's image. Let them devote themselves. Let them keep their attention on God. Let them give their lives to the work of God in the world. Don't you dare get distracted. Don't you dare be diminished. You are a bearer of the image of God. And both political parties and both candidates have done a lot because of this is how po- politics works have done a lot to convince us that the action is outside of ourselves and the political savior. They've done a lot to make us forget about our neighbors right here around us and what you or I could do with our hours, our dollars, our days, our energy, our love, our passion. So much has been done in the last few months. And I was thinking about that last night and today. Last night I'm watching the news. The returns are coming in slowly. It's clearly going to be a late night and my anxiety is increasing as I just don't know what's going to happen and which way it's going to go and I'm not sure how this is all going to shake out. And I just think, I'm giving hours to this and so much energy to it, so much attention to it, you know. And I, I thought to myself, I'm going to stand up in front of my church friends, my brothers and sisters tomorrow, and try to convince them there are things that matter more than this. And yet here I am, all my energy, all my attention, right? So I went home. I cuddled at night. I said, you know what? I'll find out in the morning. And then I woke up today, and here's what I did. I tried to do the things that I'm learning from Jesus about what it means to bear the image. There's, uh, there's this really beautiful way that in Scripture it comes full circle. So Genesis 1, every man and woman, a bearer of the image of God. But you don't have to look far to see that that image is broken in some ways in every one of us, right? None of us perfectly lives that out. There are ways that we have fallen short of that image. You don't have to look far for evidence of that, right? So Genesis 1, this this really high calling to bear the image of God for the world, for the flourishing of the world, to act on the world the way that God acts on the world. And then we fall short and we don't have enough strength or energy or skill or love for that. And then Christ comes along, and it is the insight of the early followers of Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God. And then you read, like a few verses later in Paul's letters, that not only is Christ the image of God, but you and I are meant to be conformed to the image of Christ, which just brings it all back to the beginning and says, He's starting it over. Let's try this again. You bear the image. You love the world the way God loves the world. You steward your neighborhood the way that God would steward your neighborhood. You serve your neighbor the way that God would serve your neighbor. And we wanna keep learning from Jesus how we do that image bearing in the world because that's where the action is. I don't care what CNN said. That's where the action is. We really actually believe that. So this morning, I I felt all this tension. There are all these ways that like, I wanted to sort of go with my own path, but I I tried imperfectly instead to implement some of the things that I'm learning from Jesus because I think Jesus is teaching us how to bear the image how to love the world the way God loves the world, how to act on the world the way that God would act on the world. So, for example, I wake up and I'm very, very tempted to just like, just like read Twitter updates that began at midnight and read every one of them that came through while I was sleeping until 8 a.m., you know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't actually see that in Jesus. I'm not saying Twitter's like the Antichrist, I just, I just don't see that kind of obsession in Jesus, right? I see him directing his attention toward other things, and so I happen to check my email and, and check my text messages, and what I have there, in both places, is messages from some of you who are feeling many different things about this election. Who are feeling um, maybe excited about the result, but um, villainized by others who don't like the candidate that won, and knowing that you support the candidate means that you're a villain too. And I heard from some who, um, are really brokenhearted today, who feel like the, is, uh, the world is less safe for them today because they belong to a group that got attacked uh, in the rhetoric of the election. I heard from lots of different people, and then I figured I would reach out because like, I wanted to just live in my own little inner world, like my Jason world, and like, read my Twitter, and read my news headlines, and live in my own little space, but I don't see that much in Jesus. What I see in Jesus is a lot of moving toward others. And so I call some of those friends from different places, and I wanted to make sure they know that they are so welcome here, and that whatever they're feeling today is valid, and that we should have room for all of that together, right? I sent a text uh, to the Imam of the Islamic Society here in town. This is the, uh, the leader of the Muslim community. He and I have become friends over the past few years because I read Jesus, and it sure seems like if I'm gonna bear the image like Jesus, I should probably reach out to other communities in our community that feel victimized or feel marginalized or feel like they're th- being treated like a threat. And so he and I have developed a friendship over the past few years, and I texted him, and I just said, um, dear Imam Muhammad, I just want you to know that I'm really aware that there's been some rhetoric in this election that if I were part of your community, I'd be really uncomfortable right now. And I just want you to know that I love you and I'm grateful that you're my neighbor. And he texted back and expressed his gratitude. And I, I just found myself moving through the day, like what are the things that Jesus shows us, this is what it looks like to bear the image. And I didn't do it perfectly and it was after a lot of stupid attention paid to stupid things today for me. But this is what we are doing together, learning to bear the image together, right? this is why we are gathering, not just um, to sing songs for song's sake, not just to open the scriptures for scripture's sake, but because we actually want to learn how to not be diminished by all this stuff around us, but to grow up into ourselves, right? To to grow up into ourselves and not let the politics translate their way into our souls and diminish what is meant to be there. The fullness of God's kingdom that we share with others, right? So, um, so my friend uh, Nora that I had dinner with, back in D.C. <laughs> By the way, that night, I got on the airplane, and I didn't know much about this human rights activist lawyer, and so I Googled her on my phone while I was waiting for the plane to g- pull away from the gate, and uh, the first thing I found is her going head-to-head with Bill O'Reilly for five minutes on the Fox channel, it scared the crap out of me. I was like, <laughs> I'm glad I didn't know that before I talked to her, you know what I mean? <laughs> but back at the dinner, like, what I eventually said to Nora is like, look, I know it might sound like really naive. I know it might sound like really stupid or inexperienced, and I I don't know what it's like to be you, and I don't know what it's like to live in the place in the world where you've lived. I don't know that. I totally grant that, but I actually do believe that the way of Jesus and like following the way of Jesus is a way for the world to be put back together. I actually believe it. I don't think it's naive. I don't think it's just religious. I think it's a way of living in a political world, I think it's a way of living in a world with military. I think it's a way of living in a world with governments and politics and parties. I think it's an actual way of moving through the world. I think it's where the action is. I think it's where the hope is. And so I totally get if you think I'm an idiot right now, but I just want you to know that's my conviction. I'm still figuring it out. I got a long way to go and a lot to learn, but I want to keep working that out. And I want to tell you guys, I know that I can't figure that alone. I have to do it with others. We have to do it in community. We have to do it together. We have to do it by listening to each other and learning from each other and sort of rallying around Jesus together, right? So let's just decide that we believe the action is wherever the way of Jesus is, that we believe the action is wherever people are learning to bear the image of God in the world. Let's believe that the action is in every kind of person made in the image of God, those on our right and left and those who think differently from us about their politics and those who are happy today and those who are sad today. Let's create a great community for all of that. And let's actually sort of practice together these movements that Jesus teaches us for our souls so that we can move out into the world and put things back together a little bit, right? One neighbor at a time, one city at a time, <laughs> uh, one beer at a time in the bar after, right? <laughs> um, so here's, uh, here's what we want to do um, as a bit of practice. You'll see uh, on the back side of the page that had the scriptures and the coin you'll see there um, that we have the words of this prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray, sometimes called the Lord's Prayer. And what I thought we would do tonight is make this our prayer, because this is how Jesus teaches us to pray, but sort of go slowly through it, um, kind of take a moment with each uh, bit of this prayer. Uh, before we do this, a, a word for those uh, for whom prayer is sort of, um, maybe it doesn't work for you. Like, maybe it doesn't work because you don't believe there's anybody to receive the prayer. First of all, you are so... Um, so very welcome in this community, and I'm so glad that you're here. And let me just say that I still think this could be a really meaningful exercise. Another good word for prayer is meditation. And even if you don't have, like, a sort of a sense of a connection to, like, a, a higher power or God, I think there could still be a really meaningful exercise that comes from meditating on some of this and just creating space for your heart and your mind for the, your, inner, your inner reality to move through this, right? So wherever you come from, whatever the word prayer means for you, I think um, this could be for all of us. And uh, so if you guys are okay with this, I'm just going to sort of prompt this a little bit, and we'll take about a minute for each of these for silent prayer, meditation, reflection. And maybe that you want to listen real closely during that minute and just see what you hear. Or maybe that you want to, in your mind or in your heart, offer a prayer, say something to God. Think on or reflect on uh, what this prayer means. And I think we've got a little bit of music just to sort of set the tone for us. So uh, let's bow. If you want to close your eyes, if that's helpful to you, if you want to bow your head. And I'll ask Holy Spirit that you um, lead us and guide us and carry us through this. First we read, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Which first of all says that there is a higher power than any political leader. It is a God who loves every single person, like a father's love that cherishes and desires the dignity and the security and the joyful, hopeful healing of every single person This is the reality above the universe, at the center of the universe that animates the universe, a loving Father, and it's Him that we approach. teaches us to pray may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and he teaches us that this is a kingdom where the poor are no longer lost in their poverty where those who mourn are comforted where those who ache for the world to be better than it is find that hunger finally filled where peace is made where uh, lions and lambs lie down together where we are brought together in unity under god he says this is a kingdom that is in fact coming And maybe right now it's very good to imagine that, not just on an abstract scale, but in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school. What what would it look like for every kind of person to flourish in union with God and one another? Uh, To imagine that and to long for it for a moment. May your kingdom come. Jesus teaches us to pray. Give us today our daily bread. Which is to say, (laughs) we have this beautiful and terrible capacity to live not in the present moment, but to live in past and future. And here he says, ask simply for what is needed today. Not for extravagance, not for, uh, just simply what is needed for today. Not for the future moment, not for the past, but simply this moment that we are in today to sit with the peacefulness of that simple request. Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And this is a moment when it's really easy to have much energy about others and what's wrong with them, what's wrong with the way they see the world, what's wrong with who they support or how they vote. It's even a moment when it's easy to have energy for one candidate or another and what's wrong with him or what's wrong with her and many of us right now need to specifically pray blessing on a political leader that we see as an enemy. Pray blessing on a, a tribe of people that maybe see the United States differently from us. We, we pray these prayers of blessing with the awareness that we're not perfect, that we have our own prejudices and biases, that we are tempted to be selfish, to be narrow, to draw the world around lines that make sense to us and that work for us. And we remember that as we pray for others and for their blessing, and as we let them off the hook. And Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The, uh, the translation's a little funky here, maybe better said, God, carry us in the opposite direction, away from evil. Carry us toward what is good, toward what is right, toward what is beautiful and true. And help us to resist those darker places within us that would take us in the other direction. And Jesus teaches us to remember that there is a kingdom and a power and a glory that transcends earthly political powers and momentary phenomena. That there isn't any enduring, growing, welcoming kingdom that is emerging right here in the midst of the broken kingdoms of this world. And it is God's. And this God welcomes every kind of person into that kingdom with open arms as we thank him for the power and the glory that he shares as he invites us into it. Now, if you're able, let's stand to our feet. And we're almost done. We're going to sing just a little bit more together to bring this all to a head. But before we do, um, let's just put this prayer on our lips out loud together now as we pray the way that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory now and forever. Amen.